Good morning, everyone. For you watching online, good morning to you and down at F3 as well. Glad you could uh, be with us. Have you ever noticed that things don't always go as planned sometimes? That's just the way kind of life is. Uh, and it can be mundane things sometimes. Um, your flight is canceled, so you miss the, the business trip that you needed to be on. Um, the refrigerator goes out a month after the warranty expires, things like that. Uh, the three-year-old throws up in the car uh, on the way to family vacation. You know, things like that, the things that just don't always seem to go as planned. The, the pimple shows up, you know, the size of an Empire State Building on your nose the, the night before the senior photo shoot. Um, things happen in life. And sometimes those things are really, really life-changing, like an, an unplanned pregnancy. Um, and we are grateful to the Lord that Roe v. Wade was overturned, as we've mentioned already, but uh, as we know, abortion is still alive and well. Um, 800,000, up to 800,000 little lives are going to be lost this year. Um, abortion is still the number one killer of people in America human lives that are lost, and um, we need to continue to realize that um, um, the, the, the work is not over, it is not completed. And that's why we do appreciate and support Abacare, <clears throat> our crisis pregnancy center here in town, and the work they do um, working with uh, women who are struggling with that unplanned pregnancy or couples who are struggling with um, a report, a medical report that uh, there's something maybe dangerously wrong with the baby inside and they're being encouraged to abort that baby. Abba comes alongside and encourages and prays and provides and walks alongside. And not only that, for people who have a woman who's had an abortion and now struggling with the trauma of that. They come alongside and provide uh, uh, post-abortion counseling and ministry of God's grace to those people. It's a, a worthy organization, a ministry that uh, we support here with our volunteers and our, our funds through Fellowship Bible Church, but also encourage you to do that individually and find out what God is doing. Because um, things don't always happen like we planned them. Um, we're starting the book of Acts, and um, we can also say that's true in the early church. Uh, the disciples, the 12 disciples now called apostles, the 12 apostles uh, uh, are realizing things uh, don't always happen as uh, they had hoped, as they had planned. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 8 this morning as we continue our study of the book of Acts. Um, Jesus has ascended into glory. <clears throat> and as the disciples were standing there in Acts chapter 1, looking up and gazing up as Jesus was lifted up into the clouds, the angel speaks and says, this Jesus is coming back in the same way that he went up to heaven. He's going he's to return. Well, of course the disciples knew that because Jesus had spent 40 days after he was resurrected from the dead talking about the coming kingdom, which was what the Old Testament prophets had prophesied, that God is going to set up 
an earthly kingdom on, uh, on earth here where uh, his Messiah, his anointed one, is going to reign on the throne of, of David in Jerusalem. It's going to put everything right. That was, that was so part of the, the thinking, of the mindset, of the hope of the disciples of the early church. And Jesus had said, it's, it's, it's going to happen. And so the disciples, the, the people are sitting around, they're waiting, they're hunkered down there in Jerusalem. They're preaching the message to the Jewish people. Prepare your hearts. Repent. He's going to come again, but you've got to get your hearts right. And so Peter, Will, John, and James, they'll preach their sermons. For example, in Acts chapter 3, Peter preached, Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ, the Messiah, appointed for you, that's Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. But things weren't going as planned. They were calling people to trust Jesus, and it did seem like, well, 3,000 in one day, 5,000, maybe up to 10,000 people who were turning to Jesus. And there was this, certainly a rush of excitement as, as uh, it looked like, you know, the hearts of the people were turning, and man, before long, Jesus is going to come back again. He's going to descend from those clouds, and he's going to set up the throne of, on the, uh, set up the kingdom and, and sit on the throne of his father, David, and and everything's going to work out as the prophets of old had said. But as we saw last week, as we come to chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, um, Stephen, one of the seven deacons that had been selected, a Hellenistic Jew, not a Palestinian Jew, but a faithful, faithful man, is stoned to death. Blood is spilt. And things don't go as they were planned. The religious leaders of Judaism are turning now against this, this gathering of, of early believers in Jesus, waiting for the Messiah to return. These Jewish hopefuls in the coming kingdom. Persecution is now set in. Things aren't going as planned. And so we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul, the young... Um, bright shining star of Judaism who had argued with Stephen in that temple, in that synagogue of the freedmen, went toe-to-toe -to -toe but couldn't compete with the, with the wisdom of Stephen and grew increasingly antagonistic and hateful. And he holds the cloaks of the people who are grabbing the stones and the rocks and pulverizing Stephen's body. And he was in hearty agreement. And then he did what his teacher, Gamaliel, had told him not to do. Gamaliel had said, look, let these guys alone. Let, these, let this early church, let these people be. Because if it's of God, we can't fight against it. But if it's not of God, it's just going to go away. 
but Saul, this young student of Gamaliel's, would have none of it. And it says there that he, he ravaged the church. It's a very strong ter term. It's a, it's a word that is used of animals tearing apart their prey. He goes house to house. Persecution had set in. The church is scattered except for the apostles. God's plan, though, was not on pause. God was not up in heaven biting his fingernails, wondering what in the world is happening here. He had already laid out his plan. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in old Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. In Jerusalem, well, they were certainly were trying to do that. Judea and Samaria, well, it didn't seem to be working out there in the uttermost part of the world when you're hunkered down in Jerusalem waiting for the kingdom to start and you're all focused right there on the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And that's when God provided the persecution to scatter the church out of Jerusalem to fulfill what he had called them to do. Be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world. Um, that's what was happening. Verse 4, Acts chapter 8, verse 4, says that the, um, those who had been scattered out of Jerusalem went about preaching the word. It was working. <laughs> they are scattered out of Jerusalem, and they're preaching the word, and one of those was a, a buddy and partner of Stephen who had just been martyred, one of the seven deacons, and his name was Philip. Acts chapter 6 and 7 was focused on Stephen, but Acts chapter 8 is now focused on Philip. When we get to Acts chapter 9, it's going to be focused on Saul and the amazing story that led to his conversion. But in Acts chapter 8, hopefully we can get through most of this today, we read about Philip, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip, as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. And in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in the city. Now, it's hard to appreciate, I think, how radical it was for Philip to go to Samaria. I don't know what the disciples thought when Jesus had said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. We've got that. I mean, that's where the throne of David is going to be. Okay, we've got that covered. And then Jesus said, Judea and Samaria. And Samaria was like, what? We don't appreciate necessarily the, the cultural um, animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews, but it was palpable. It was real. Um, Samaria, Samaria was that, that region that separated kind of the northern Jewish regions of Galilee from the southern Judean regions where Jerusalem was. And good Jews, they, they just, they wouldn't even walk through Samaria. They would walk around it because Samaritans were, well, they were even human. See, the history of the Samaritans, it, 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 for centuries this was, this was the case the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. Real quick, the, the history. When Solomon died, his son took over the kingdom of Israel, this Old Testament stuff, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a scoundrel. And finally there was a rebellion, a, a, a civil war, and the ten northern tribes 
um, separated from the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah. So there was Israel to the north and there was Judah to the south. And um, the, the people of the northern ten tribes, this kingdom of Israel, were led by godless kings um, their entire history. Until finally God said in 722 B.C., enough's enough, and he brought the Assyrians from the north. 8th century B.C. brought the Assyrians from the north to conquer the, and put an end to the, to the kingdom of Israel, those ten tribes to the north. And the way the Assyrians would conquer people is they would take, they would, well, they would kill them. Horrible, horrible stuff they would do to people. But then they would take some off to captivity, but then they would bring other conquered people and uh, intermingle with the, the newly conquered people, and they would basically neutralize that, that people, that race. And over time, that's exactly what happened to the, to the northern people. They either were dead, they were hauled off in captivity, or they started intermarrying with other conquered people that had been brought in to that region. Well, that's who the Samaritans were. They were the progeny of, of this this um, intermingling, this intermarrying race over the decades and centuries of time. They were, they were half-breeds. That's how the Jews viewed them, and they wanted nothing to do with them. When the, when the southern two tribes of Israel were taken off into captivity in 586 B.C., back to Babylon, 70 years later, they come back to this land of Palestine, and who do they have to contend with? Well, these half-breeds, these, these Samaritans that were there, that, that dogged them and, and, and fought against them. And so for centuries, there was this animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. They would have nothing to do with one another. And here comes Philip. In obedience to the Lord, you're going to be my witnesses. Not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria. And Philip goes into this region and he preaches a good news that liberates people from demonic strongholds and heals them from diseases and presents Jesus Christ and the power of eternal life through Jesus. And great rejoicing takes place in Samaria. Well, let's keep reading. What happens? We're introduced to a really interesting guy. Oh, I forgot to mention. John, why do I always forget this? John 4. When Jesus went through Samaria... Um, and he, uh, he met that Samaritan woman at the well. The Samaritan woman said to him, hey, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John adds, because the Samaritans had no dealings with the Jews. Well, that was true to this day that Philip is coming there to Samaria. So he comes, but there's a very interesting person that shows up. Look at verse 9. There was a man, and his name was Simon, who formerly was practicing magic. He was a sorcerer, a wizard. He was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time ast astonished them with his magical arts. Interesting character, this Simon. He had a great little gig going on there in that area. Um, he was, it says, a, a, a practitioner of magic, a sorcerer. People in those days, and of course maybe even our day and age, are enthralled with the, with the superstitious, with the, with the unknown realm, with that, 
that spiritual unknown. And man, Simon was, uh, man, he had them spellbounded uh, powers that just amazed the people. In fact, so much so, verse 9, or verse 9 and 10 says they were calling him the great power of God. Now, I'm not sure what that means. Some indicate it means that some people thought maybe he was divine. There was, he was some deity. The Samaritans had um, a tradition of a Messiah that was to come. Some thought he was maybe the Messiah. He's the great power of God. And man, did he have a corner on the market on the sorcery of the day. He had a great thing going, probably making a lot of money. And it says in verse 11, he'd been doing it for many years. So this guy wasn't just a flash-in-the-pan kind of magician. He was sticking around. He was wowing the crowds, and it was going on for quite some time. And he had a great following until Philip showed up. And the gospel of Jesus Christ turned people's hearts. We keep reading verse 12, 13. But when they um, believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, men and women alike. And then it says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Constantly amazed. People were coming to faith in Christ. Even Simon himself, it says, believed. He was following after Philip. He was just amazed at what was going on. Something had happened to Simon. Now, word got back to Jerusalem and the apostles in Jerusalem that something was going down in Samaria. And so they sent, it says, Peter and John to check it out. Keep reading, verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down, and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now this is an interesting passage. It really is, uh, is fascinating. People are getting saved, verse 12. People are turning to Christ. There is salvation, eternal life being brought to these people. They're embracing the message of Jesus, and they're publicly declaring it through baptism. There's, this is, these are born-again experiences that are happening. Even Simon himself believed and was baptized. But they hadn't received the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came down and laid hands on them. So what's going on here? Now, we've talked this numerous times as we've studied through the book of Acts. Remember, the book of Acts is historical literature. Inspired, in, in, inerrant historical literature. Its genre is narrative. It's not didactic. We're not forming doctrinal understandings from Acts. We're seeing the replay of historical accounts as the People of God were moving out of the Old Testament tradition, Old Testament times, transitioning to something totally new, the New Testament era. This is major. You're moving from Old Testament 
to New Testament, and it's a transition time. A transition time. Very important. Now, if we don't understand that properly, it can lead to understanding some things about the Holy Spirit that aren't accurate, that, aren't, that don't mesh with the epistles and the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 that the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place the moment we trust Christ. By one spirit, he says, we are all baptized. We are all identified with one body, the body of Christ. The moment we trust Christ as our Savior, we are placed into the body of Christ, in the church universal. We become members of the body of Christ. We had a membership class yesterday morning with 20-some 20, 20 people. And I always like to explain in that membership class, um, doing membership class is not biblical. I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that says you've got to be a member of a local church. It's a practical thing that is helpful, and we do it here at Fellowship Bible Church. But the reality is the moment you trust Christ as your Savior, you're placed, you are identified with, you are baptized by the Spirit into, you're placed into the body of Christ at that moment. So, so what's happening here? They got saved, obviously, verse 12, but it's later that the Holy Spirit comes upon them when the disciples, when the apostles place their hands on them. What's happening here? Well, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was taking place subsequent to their salvation for some very important practical reasons that don't apply to us today. This is historical literature. If we understand the nature of the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews, you can begin to understand why God in his sovereign grace and wisdom allowed for the disciples to come from Jerusalem to lay hands on these Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. There's an important need for continuity with what was going on in Jerusalem and the Jews in Samaria with the Samaritans. It was important in God's economy and plan that there was continuity, that this is one body. Racial divides were erased because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by bringing the disciples down to lay hands so that the Holy Spirit would be received at that point, it would guard against any potential rift that would continue between a Samaritan followers of Jesus and the Jewish followers of Jesus from Jerusalem. God and his wisdom allowed for that, that time lapse between them getting saved and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Continuity with what God's program was about as well as just the practical thing of unity. The Samaritans had come to faith in Christ through Philip. It was a real viable experience of salvation. But now they, because of the coming of Peter and John and the coming of the Holy Spirit when they placed their hands on them, now they have this unified, this wholeness of the body of Christ. They saw Peter, these Jewish Christians, come and lay hands on them, and the Spirit comes. There is unity there. Peter and John could go back to Jerusalem and says, hey, it's real. I mean, we went down there. We saw people, they were Samaritans. We've never had any dealings with Samaritans before, but, but they, they came to Christ. They have trusted Jesus. And we laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. It is real, and there's unity and continuity in the plan of God. 
God had erased the racial barriers between the Jews and the Samaritans because of the gospel. Um, let's keep reading. This is where Simon makes his mistake at this point. It's a pretty interesting, again, passage that continues. Verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. And he said, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. Pray, pray that the Lord, if possible, will forgive the, um, the intention of your heart. For I see that you, verse 23, you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. And Simon answered, and he said, pray to the Lord for me yourself so that nothing of what you've said may come upon me. Um, I, I, just about everybody I read when I've studied through the book of Acts will say that Simon really, this proves Simon really had a spurious faith. He, he really, really had not come to faith. That he was, um, he was an unbelieving believer. I can't for the life of me understand why people would conclude that. Um, we've already established the fact in verse 13 that Simon, it says, had believed. He was baptized. He started following Philip. In fact, if you go back to verse 9, it says in verse 9, there was a man named Simon who formerly or previously practiced magic. He even walked away from it. It says he had believed, he was baptized, he's following Philip, and he, for, he had walked away from his practices of sorcery. So why would we conclude that this guy is not saved? Because we falsely understand sometimes that um, you've got to act a certain way and think a certain way and perform a certain way to prove that you really are a true believer. That would be nice. It's not always the case. And in Simon, it certainly wasn't the case. What was happening to Simon? He was a new believer. He was a baby Christian. He was an infant. Uh, who here, if you remember your salvation experience, your conversion experience. I don't remember. I was five years old. I mean, I don't, the worst I ever did was, I don't know what I, bad things I did when I was five years old. Um, and then I became a Christian. Some of you, maybe it was later in life as an adult. But you could testify the fact that the moment you trusted Christ as your Savior, you didn't instantly become a perfect person. We bring into that Christian life the baggage from the past, we bring in the, the, the pains and the, the traumas and, and, the, and the wrong thinking. Oh, yes, the Bible does say that the moment we trust Christ, we are new creations in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Our position in Jesus is, is intact, is certain, it's sure. We are born again, regenerated, brought to newness of life. All that is true of our internal reality. But the fact of the matter is, 
as the Apostle Paul would explain in Romans chapter 6 and 7, um, we still have an issue of sin. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 6, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Why, why should we? Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with and that we can no longer be slaves to sin. But then Paul goes on in chapter 7 and says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free from this body of this death? And in Romans chapter 7, Paul is saying, Look, I struggle with coveting. I hate it. The good I want to do, I don't do, he says in Romans 7. I'm doing the very thing I hate, oh, wretched man that I am. Here's a man who's honest. He's not perfect. He's brought into his Christian experience some realities of the past. We all do that. Simon did. He's an infant. He's a baby Christian. He had a great thing going. That's the mindset, the, 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 the flesh patterns, you could say, of his life was to make money. Oh, wow, look at what they're doing. And he very simply and very easily fell back to that old fleshly thinking, that pattern that says, you know, I can better myself. There's some power here. Oh, I'd love to be, give that to me so that I can lay hands on people and they'll get the Holy Spirit. And Peter was really strong when he said, may your money perish, may you be ruined, and may you die if you keep that thinking up. May your money perish with you, with that type of, of thinking. Your heart is not right with the Lord. This is wicked thinking. Now, think back to Acts chapter 5, a few weeks ago when Tim uh, preached that passage on Ananias and Sapphira in the early church in, in Jerusalem. Remember that? They sold some, a piece of land, and they gave the money. People were doing that, and, and they gave the money to the disciples and to distribute to people in need. And Oh, we sold this land, and here's the money. But they kept back some of it for themselves. They lied. What happened to them? Remember the story? Boom, they dropped dead, right? Fascinating, by the way, to see that our giving went up that next week. I don't know what the, <laughs> what the deal is there. but um. And now here is Peter to the Samaritan church. And here's a man who's struggling with the temptation of, of slipping back into those old ways of thinking and, and seeing he could cha-ching, 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 I can make money. May your money perish with you just like Ananias and Sapphira. And he's warning Simon of the reality. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, and probably a better translation is, I see you heading, you're, you're, you're coming into the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity because, as Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and mammon. And Simon said, pray to the Lord for, for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said can come upon me. It's like he's beside himself. I think he's gripped with fear. I don't know if the stories of Ananias and Sapphira were circling. They probably were because that was pretty powerful. Pray for me. Um, Simon is a believer. It said it. He demonstrated that by publicly being baptized. He walked away from his sorcery. He followed Philip. But he was a baby Christian. 
And what Simon needed was to be discipled. Jesus has said, go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Discipleship starts with coming to faith in Christ, but then there's a process of growth. Peter wrote at the last, his last epistle in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And he said, you know, you're, you're infants. You ought to be mature believers by now. But you're not. You're acting fleshly. You're jealous among one another. And you're, you're, you're pitting one group against another. I'm a Paul. I'm a Peter. I'm a Paulus. You're, 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 you're sinfully acting like little children. You should be grown up by now. Well, give Simon some time. Because he needed to be discipled. And every one of us, folks, need to be discipled. We need to have each other speak truth into our lives. We need to be in a body of believers where we're not just coming and sitting and hearing some guy flap his gums for 40 minutes. We need to be together in, in fellowship, in community groups, or in, in a women's Bible study. The women's Bible study, they're teaching and learning about the Holy Spirit going on right now, or, or a crack of dawn group, or a, uh, a crack of dust group on Thursday night with men, or uh, other small groups, one and one, or one or three people coming together. We're doing it with our youth, the children's ministry. We need to be discipled. We need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we all know this. A 40-minute message on Sunday morning does not a disciple make. I hope it's encouraging. I hope you learn things. I mean, I'm not doing this for nothing. <laughs> but this does not create mature believers. And so we need to take the Christian life seriously. We need to get serious about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The days are evil. Redeem the time, Paul said. And Simon just needed to grow. He's a baby Christian, and he needed to grow. Well, let's keep moving on. Got a little bit of more time. I want to wrap up this, this time with, uh, because Philip's work is not done. It's, it's, it's not over yet. So let's keep reading. Verse 25. So when the disciples Solomon, uh, had Solomon testified, spoken the word of the Lord, they started going back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But, verse 26, the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and said, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza, that is the desert road. And so he got up and went. This, this next story, by the way, I'm going to just share real quickly like five principles of evangelism here because this is such a model story and the first one is right there effective evangelism is spirit directed is spirit directed and the spirit of God impelled Philip to go leave Samaria and go down that desert road and he did he went and there verse 27 was an Ethiopian eunuch a court official of Candace queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure, this guy's a big wheel. This guy's the real deal in, in, in the government. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So he's a proselyte. He's, he's interested in the, the things of God. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Not only is effective evangelism spirit-directed, it's scripture-oriented. He's reading Isaiah and verse 29 says, the Spirit said to Philip, go join that chariot. And so he ran up, and he heard the guy reading Isaiah the prophet. 
And he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the passage of Scripture, verse 32, that he was reading, it was right out of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself? Of, of someone else? What is going on? Show me the passage. Explain it to me. Evangelism is spirit-directed. It's scripture-oriented. The third thing, it's Christ. It's Christ-centered. Because in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and began from this scripture. He preached Jesus to him. And through the teaching of the scriptures... Christ was focused. Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 1, he said, we are born again of living seed, the powerful word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Effective evangelism is anchored, is grounded in scripture, just like we see here. Because scripture will put the focus on Christ, Christ-centered. What happened next? Verse 36, and as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Now, verse 37, I would wager that a bunch of your translations don't even include verse 37. It says, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You may not even have a verse 37 in your Bibles because it's a good chance this is one of these rare things where this was a later addition uh, some scribes scri translating the Bible took a, 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 tried to explain what had happened to the eunuch, and he inserted this. It's true, the man had put his faith and trust in Christ, just like the Samaritans had. They believed, and they were baptized. Here comes this man, and he had put his trust in Christ, as Philip had explained it from the Scriptures. He preached Jesus to him, and then he was baptized. Verse 38, he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down to the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. Here's two good Baptist boys right here. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch much, uh, no longer saw him, and he went on his way rejoicing. And Philip found himself, verse 40, in the Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities under the, uh, until he came to Caesarea. Evangelism is spirit-directed, it's scripture-oriented, it's Christ-centered, it's faith-focused, and it's never finished. Isn't this an amazing thing, really? Here you are, you know, you're, you're there in Samaria, all of a sudden, you find yourself on the desert road. And then you witness this guy, and all of a sudden you disappear, and you're near what's modern-day Ashdod along the coast. And you preach the gospel up to Caesarea. It's like, you know, you're being transported. It's an amazing thing what God was doing with Philip. And uh, we'll find out that Philip ended up in Caesarea. Twenty years later, the Apostle Paul visits him in Caesarea in his home. Um, effective evangelism. You know, we started this study in the book of Acts, and I shared that the overall theme of the book of Acts is the triumph of the gospel. Is God doing his work, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth? And we'll see when we get to the end of Acts, the uttermost part of the earth, or the Roman Empire anyway. But in chapter 8, God brought the good news 
of his eternal salvation to some people that, well, the Jewish people wouldn't have really given the time of day to. But God so loved the world that he gave his son. What I find encouragement in this passage is the two extremes. You got a guy like Simon, and people would certainly see Simon and say, there is no way on God's green earth that that guy will ever come to Jesus. Why would he? He's got a great little thing going. He's making a lot of money. He's wowing the crowds. But he came face to face with some power that was greater than himself. Something that captured his heart, and it was the message of Jesus and God's love and grace and mercy. And he believed it. And he was baptized, and he followed after Philip, and his life was turned around. Yes, he brought his baggage into it. He needed to be discipled just like we all do. But I, I'm just certain that people looked at him and thought, what, this, this guy, I'll never, why waste your time on him? And then there's the Ethiopian eunuch. He's a worshiper of God. He's been up to Jerusalem worshiping. He's actually reading from the book of Isaiah. I mean, can you get it teed up any better than that? And, uh, you know, Philip, God sends him there, and there's the guy, and I don't know, what does it mean? Why, you can't get any easier than that. I'll never forget uh, when I was pastoring in a little rural church in Nebraska, I got a call one day from someone in the community, would you come and visit and, sh and talk and, and, and meet with my son, my 38-year-old son, who's dying of cancer. These were unchurched people. They never darkened the church door. But would you come and talk with my son? He's dying of cancer. He only has a few weeks left. So I went to that home, knocked on the door, came in. I sat with that guy. We introduced each other. We talked a little bit. I heard a little bit of his life. And I said, well, now what, what would you like? What, 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 are, what, would you, what are you asking of me? Why am I here? And he looked at me and says, are you kidding? I'm dying. I'm not going to be around this earth many more weeks. I need to know how to get to heaven. Good night, young pastor. What was the thinking? Did God tee that up for me? Are you kidding? Man, that was a home run. What must I do to be saved? That's what this Ethiopian eunuch was saying. Who is this? Tell it to me. And what I find encouragement in Acts chapter 8 is that, folks, in your life, in your family, in your place of work, there are Simons, and you may look at it and say, oh, why waste my breath on that guy or that person? They have no interest in spiritual things. They're antagonistic. They want nothing to do with Jesus. And then there are people who are so hungry and so ready and are so, they're just ripe for the picking. But never, ever, ever say that those Simons are not worth sharing the good news of Jesus. Because they'll come to faith if God is drawing them to it. They'll come to faith. I've often said this, you know, you might be too good to get to heaven but you'll never be too bad to get to heaven. You say, what? Oh yeah, it's the religious people that always struggle with faith in Christ. It's the religious people that look and say, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. I think I, you know, I do this and I do that and, I, and, uh, and, and that religiosity, all that goodness can block you from realizing you're a sinner and you'll, there's nothing you can do to get to heaven. You'll never be good enough. And it's just sometimes hard for people to accept that. But you take a Simon who's been dabbling or deeply involved in the darkness and the demonic and the debauchery of, of the sinfulness and the wickedness of the age. 
and their life is not happy, their life is not pleasant, they know deep in their soul there's a huge, huge, huge hole. And they may be acting like, um, you know, they're antagonistic or they want nothing to do with spiritual things. But the answer is Jesus, and you know that. And you begin to present the word, the truth of Jesus to people. And if you trust God and just turn it over to him, those Simons, those, those sorcerers will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Oh no, you'll never be too good, but you might, you'll never be too bad to get to heaven, but you might be too good. And so as we go and we're, we're building bridges of this theme and as we're, we're connecting with people, let's be mindful. There are assignments out there, but don't write them off. And man, when an Ethiopian eunuch comes along, then rejoice and go ahead and share Jesus and enjoy the fruit of leading someone to Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. God is in the world in the business of saving people's lives. That's his heart. Jesus said, I came. I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom. God so loved the world, the Simons, the Ethiopian eunuchs, the people in your sphere of influence. May he use us like maybe he used someone in our life. May he use us to point people to Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for uh, the example that we have here in Acts chapter 8. It's historical. It's, it's, it's the account of what's happened, but Lord, it's written for our instruction. There were obstacles, no doubt, Lord, that in spite, of, in spite of the persecution that was going on, in spite of the cultural prejudice that was going on, in spite of the pesky demonic activity that was there in Samaria and the human pride of a Simon, in spite of the, the vast personal differences between Philip, a lowly, um, a lowly Jew from Jerusalem, and the Ethiopian eunuch who was in charge of the Ethiopian treasury. In spite of all these potential human obstacles, the gospel of Jesus Christ triumphed. It's right there in the pages. And Father, may it be so in our life, in our day. May we see the gospel triumph, Father, for your glory, I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.